0: I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, the men and boys that are not all right.
1: Young people were always coming into the building because their caseworkers were looking for safe homes for them to go to.
0: This was three decades ago. Cameron Miles was a social worker in the foster care system in Baltimore, and some of the behavior he saw in the young men he worked with troubled him.
1: When they came into the building, they were completely out of control, fighting, cursing, disrespecting their caseworkers. And my thought was, you've grown up in West Baltimore. You can work with these young people or try to.
0: Miles could relate to the headwinds the kids were facing.
1: Over 90% are being raised by grandmother, auntie, or mother. Many of them are gonna get hooked up with a a gang, um, get involved with drugs, get caught up in the juvenile system. Many of the young people that go into jail, they learn to be better criminals. So we don't want our young people to go there in the first place.
0: So Miles started a Saturday morning program in his free time with whatever donations he could round up. Twice a month for four hours, the boys gather for food, guest speakers.
1: State senators, judges, lawyers, business owners.
0: They go on big field trips too.
1: We go to sporting events. Many families, if not all, can't afford to spend $300 to go see a professional basketball game. But the clock is ticking. And I tell them every month, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And we want them to plan to be successful. And for 27 years, that's what we've done.
0: Boys and men in America have been falling behind in some key areas over the past few decades. They're outperformed by women at every level of education, less likely to graduate from high school and enroll in or finish college. Men in the US are more likely to die from suicide, and they aren't participating in the labor market as much as they used to either. Now, during this same time, we have made concerted efforts to boost opportunities for women and girls in this country. That job is not finished. So when we talk about gender inequality in America, it makes sense that the conversations tend to be about women. But have we accidentally overlooked some serious struggles among American males in the meantime? Today on Top of Mind, we're looking at a few of the issues facing modern men and boys and how to help them. The work that Cameron Miles has been doing for 27 years in Baltimore caught our attention. The boys he mentors are mostly African-American. And the fact is, boys of color are at the greatest disadvantage in this country. Black youth are eight times more likely to die from gunfire than other children. And they're less likely to graduate from high school, even when compared to African-American girls. The program Miles runs for boys in Baltimore is called Mentoring Male Teens in the Hood.
1: We get referrals from word of mouth. We get referrals from the Baltimore City school system, uh, Department of Juvenile Services and Department of Social Services. So I feel I can offer them uh, a safe environment, a positive environment and exposure. Many of our young people, once they get exposed to something, they can take the bull by the horn and, and decide, hey, I'm gonna do something positive with my life or not. And we haven't been 100 percent successful, uh, but we have quite a few young people who are doing the right thing.
0: A participant named Imhotep Simba comes to
1: mind. Imhotep Simba started when he was seven. Imhotep's mother came to me with tears in her eyes. He wasn't listening. Uh, you, I don't know if, how well you know Baltimore, but he they had a home, a real home on Dolphin Street. She was receiving Section 8. And he was doing all the things that he should not have been doing. Coming in late, hanging with the wrong people at at that age. So, you know, young people were starting out earlier and earlier. The, the pathway was was jail or, and or prison.
0: But participating in mentoring male teens in the hood changed that, says Miles.
1: He graduated from Coppin State University. And uh, he's looking at a uh, program at Georgetown now for global studies to get a master's degree. So he's just, he's just, he's doing very well and we're very proud of him. We got him connected with the Peace Corps. He went to Ecuador. He speaks fluent Spanish. He teaches our young men Spanish. Uh, He is currently still helping uh, at the program on Saturdays and he brings his son. Uh, He works at the Annie Casey Foundation. He's a shining example of what is possible and what can happen. They just have to have the right guidance. Exposure is key. I mean, every year we're taking a field trip somewhere. We've taken the young men to Harvard, to Princeton, to Yale, to Duke, to Columbia University, Springfield, Morehouse. And these are young men that, that for whatever reason, the families don't have the financial resources to take a vacation or get out of Baltimore. Many had never stayed in a hotel. And, and every time we take a trip, I mean, things we take for granted, many have never done.
0: You say you're exposing them. They don't get exposure to what? What are you, what are you exposing them to? And what's the effect on the boys of that exposure?
1: So, for example, um, we'll have the director, the major, if you will, of the Western District Police Command. Many of our young people they hate the police, and I'm trying to to turn that around. So I've asked the major who represents the Western District to come and speak at the program. And I'm hoping that young people can air their concerns. We've had a history of problems with the city police department. So by speaking with leadership, I want the young people to see that the police are not all bad. And I want the police to have an understanding of some of the challenges that young young people deal with. So that in itself, you know. Is 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 progress, because if they can talk without cursing each other out or being disrespectful, I think it it makes to makes for a more wholesome community.
0: Yeah, so you're really thinking about exposing these young men to op- all of the ways in which they can be productive contributors in their societies. Absolutely. It-
1: Absolutely, and I want them to believe in themselves. Their parents may have five or six children; they may not have many financial resources, but education is their ticket out. Many of them feel, uh, Mr. Miles, I'm going to be an NBA player. Mr. Miles, I'm going to be an NFL player. And, you know, they got to have a backup plan and and you got to work. You may have to work two or three jobs and we want them to learn that principle. You don't get it by picking up a gun and and taking it from people because you're going to end up dead or you're going to end up locked up. And we have some mantras So as a group, after every uh, meeting, I say something and I have them repeat after me. Do you want to do it? Let's do it. Okay. I am somebody. I am somebody. I have self-worth. I have self-worth. For good, better or best, never let it rest until my good gets better and my better gets best.
0: For good, better, or best, never let it rest until my good gets better and my better gets best.
1: And the last one is failure is not an option.
0: (laughs) Failure is not an option. That's great.
1: And by saying those kinds of things over and over, it permeates the subconscious mind. And I want to believe that by hearing it over and over and over again, they will begin to act that out because they're not hearing negative messages constantly about you'll never amount to anything. You're a sorry so-and-so. or whatever the negative things they hear in the neighborhood, when they come to us, we want to give positive affirmations because I believe that that goes through their mind and their soul and helps them to be the best citizen they can be.
0: How do you stay motivated to keep doing this work, even when sometimes the boys don't make the choices? things don't turn out the way y- 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 you're hoping for them?
1: I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that gives me uh, my focus. I'm not perfect, but that helps me to stay stay grounded. And I want to leave this world and Baltimore City a better place than I found it. So I'm going to continue to push in, and ask God to give me strength to keep these things going, to make good decisions and to keep our young people safe. I think too many adults... Um, are not consistent. Young people have been disappointed. They've been lied to over and over and over again. So I don't want to be that one. If Mr. Miles says we're going to do something, we're going to do it. Um, they, they don't have to show up and say, well, Mr. Miles, he worked all week, Cause I work a full-time job. I do the mentoring program in the evenings and on Saturday. So I, I don't want them to show up and, and they get a message. Well, Mr. Miles uh, felt he needed to sleep late today there's no program. And then if they're not coming to my program, they're getting involved in something else. Maybe trying to steal your car or breaking into somebody else's house or doing something they have no business doing. Yeah. So I want to do my part to make sure they they try to do the right thing. And when you get a chance, please look at the website. It's, it's mentoringmailteens.org. And if you ever want to send us a half a million dollars, we'll be glad to take it.
0: The minute I get a half a million dollars, you'll be one of the people on my list. I'm, I'm
1: being I'm being facetious. If every twenty dollars we get, we're grateful for. But what I'm saying is we we need to continue to get money to be able to do things.
0: In in addition to um asking for financial support when you go out into the community. What else can the community do? What can communities across the country do more of or do better do differently to support young men like the ones that you work with?
1: First of all, they can speak to them. There, There are many adults that will not speak to people, especially young people, because they're afraid of them. But many young people want to be spoken to in a respectful way. Hey, how you doing? And and keep it moving. You know, we can't act like they're invisible. Um, and, and more adults can get involved. I've been doing this 27 years, but I can tell you the majority of people that have said they're gonna come by, I'm still waiting for them to come by. Our yes has to be yes, our no has to be no. We've got to do what we say we're gonna do. And we've, we've got to help young people If everybody took a moment to help one or two, we'd have less of them in the juvenile system.
0: Cameron Miles is the founder and director of Mentoring Male Teens in the Hood. Their website is mentoringmaleteens.org. He mentioned that 90% of the kids in his program there in Baltimore are being raised by a single mother or other female relative. The United States has undergone a massive shift in family structure in the last few decades. Today, nearly a quarter of all U.S. kids are living in single-parent households. That is three times higher than the global average. And that matters. Even more for boys than girls. They're more
2: sensitive to the loss Of nurturing parental input.
0: That's coming up on Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Hey, Top of Mind listeners, I have another podcast I want to recommend to you. It's from the BYU radio family of podcasts, and it's called The Appleseed. It's a show filled with stories for you and your family. Each episode features master storytellers sharing all kinds of stories, folk tales, fairy tales, personal and family tales. So it's perfect for road trips, for bedtime or really any time you're looking for something that the whole family can enjoy together. And the stories you'll hear will likely get your family sharing their own stories with each other, which is really the best part. It's the payoff. So listen to The Appleseed wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Kids growing up without the benefit of two parents in their house really are at a large disadvantage when it comes to hitting all sorts of things we would consider, let's say, success markers.
0: This is Melissa Carney.
2: I'm an economics professor at the University of Maryland, and my new book is called The Two-Parent Privilege.
0: Okay, before we get any deeper here, I wanna jump in and say that we are going to get to a really interesting discussion about boys and their fathers and how the issues they face are intertwined. But in order to get to that, there are some things we need to understand about the state of marriage and family structure in the United States, starting with this.
2: Essentially, 30% of kids in this country live outside a two-parent home. That I think is is the issue and challenge we should be focused on.
0: An issue why? What's the problem with that?
2: We just have a preponderance of evidence that kids who grow up without the benefit of two parents in their home— um, just are at a, a really a, an elevated risk of behavioral problems, getting in trouble in school, getting in trouble with the law. They're less likely to graduate high school. They're less likely to graduate college. They're more likely to wind up single parents as themselves in adulthood. And so as much as we might want to pretend that family structure doesn't matter, the evidence at this point is just really overwhelming.
0: What do you mean as much as we might like to pretend?
2: I think it's harder for us to talk about in a public policy sense as opposed to things like schools or safety net or government programs. It just becomes a little bit uncomfortable and sensitive to talk about the role of families. But um, we don't want to let our well-intentioned inclinations to not sound judgmental or to be inclusive of all family types. We don't want those to Cloud our ability or willingness to acknowledge, I think, that the decline in the share of kids living with two parents is is a societal problem and it's not been great for kids.
0: Professor Kearney, is this a a new trend? Uh, And I mean, more recent, that children being raised in single parent households are so much more common? The
2: really important really important issue underlying all of this is that this is much more common outside the college-educated class. There's been very little decline over the past 40 years in the share of kids born to college-educated mothers living in married-parent homes. It's all really happened among adults with lower levels of education, and it's not just the most disadvantaged. So in the 80s, there was an increase in single motherhood among women without a high school degree there was an increase in teen childbearing that is not what's happened since then okay since the mid-90s teen childbearing has fallen by over 70 percent i think what's a little bit more new was the decrease in the share of kids born to parents with a with a high school degree maybe some college credits just not a four-year college degree how many of them are now living in a single parent household? I, I think people haven't that there's not a widespread recognition of just how widespread this has become,
0: and are, are there are there racial differences? Is it prime or is it primarily this trend tracks along educational outcomes?
2: What's happened over the past forty years, is a real big emergence of a class gap by education. So let me be very specific. If you just take children whose moms identify as Black in the U.S. Census, 60% of those whose, ch- whose moms have a four-year college degree live in a married parent home. 30% of those whose moms have only high school or less live in a married parent home. So now we're at a point where there are massive differences both across race and ethnic groups and within race and ethnic groups by education level. So huge gap by education class, but very low rates for essentially all Black children as compared to white, Hispanic, and Asian.
0: Is it the money? Is it it that when you're a single parent, there's just less money in the house? Is that primarily what's driving the, the, the challenges?
2: In our statistical models, when we adjust for income, the gaps in outcomes between kids growing up in single, and single parent homes and married parent homes shrinks, but it doesn't go away. But there's a whole bunch of other resources that two-parent households have that single-parent households don't have. So it's not just income, it's also parental time, emotional bandwidth. We have research studies showing that those households have lower levels of stress. So I think it's a mistake to think we can fully close the gaps between single parent and married parent households.
0: With income. Now, this problem is a particularly American one, says Carney. A lot of European countries, for example, have low marriage rates, but that doesn't translate to a whole lot of kids being raised in single parent households.
2: Kids are just much more likely to live with biological parents who are cohabiting in Europe than in the US. Why cohabitation seems to be a more prevalent or stable institution in a lot of European countries as compared to the U.S., I don't know. As a practical matter, it appears to be, though. Here's where the
0: issue of boys comes to the fore.
2: There's been a couple of very compelling papers that have found that growing up without a dad in the house puts boys, in particular, at a disadvantage. Okay, so let me unpack that a little bit. What these researchers find is that the gender gap that now favors girls, meaning girls are less likely to get in trouble in school, they're more likely to do well on school tests, they're more likely to graduate high school, more likely to go to college, the gender gap favoring girls is larger among kids who grow up in single mother homes, meaning that boys are at a relative disadvantage these days that disadvantage is even greater if they don't have a dad in the house.
0: Specifically tied, we think, to the the role model, the the relationship that a boy has with a, a father in the home?
2: We don't have a very clear sense yet of how much of the relative or increased disadvantage boys experience is from a lack of a role model. One of these studies by Marianne Bertrand and Jessica Pond, they have access to this nationally representative data that contains information about home environment and parenting inputs. So one of the things that they document very clearly is that boys who grow up with a single mom as compared to married parents are more likely to experience harsh parenting. The mom reports less nurturing feelings, more um more of a proclivity to engage in, let's say, spanking, things that you you might expect would be associated with more stressful home environment. They have less time with their mom. And all of those things actually matter even more for boys than girls, which I think is a really interesting finding that boys are particularly sensitive, more sensitive than girls are when it comes to things like how likely are they to, get suspended in school or or report behavioral problems in school, they're more sensitive to the loss of nurturing parental input. You know, my, my guess is that the lack of a role model amplifies all of that, and it's, in part, the lack of a dad that means the mom has to take on these additional parenting responsibilities that are stressful and make it harder to parent the way people would like to parent.
0: So what do we think was going on in the 90s and 2000s that might have led these women with a high school degree, maybe even some college, to be so much more likely to be single mothers?
2: My read of what happened is that the economic changes that happened in the 80s, 90s and early 2000s really contributed to this. So let's step back and recall that in the 60s and 70s, there was a major social cultural revolution, changes in gender norms, changes in the expectation about marriage. And what we saw during the 60s and 70s is a decline in marriage among adults of all education levels. But then going into the 80s, 90s, 2000s, marriage rates among college-educated adults stabilized. And they stabilized such that College-educated adults were now much more and have been much more likely to get married than less-educated adults. It corresponds to a bunch of economic shocks that were pretty punishing to workers or adults without a college-level education, especially men. What are the kinds of shocks I have in mind um, you know, changes in technology, industrial robot adoption, increased import competition from China, these economic changes led to a loss in employment and earnings among men in the U.S. without a college degree. Women too, but it really sort of, it both eroded the absolute position of, of men without a college degree and their rel- their position relative to women in their sort of education group. So let's say a loss of manufacturing jobs that previously paid nice middle-class family sustaining jobs to men without college degrees. When those jobs went away, we see a reduction in marriage and an increase in the share of kids living with single mothers. And so I think, you know, it's a combination of social changes and economic changes that led to this change in family structure, in particular outside the college educated class
0: yeah so these economic shocks that you refer to, um, they affected women less. I mean, is it fair to say that women there have been some wage gains, you know, closing the wage gap for yeah. for women in a lot of different not it's not hasn't been eliminated, but there have been gains for women in terms of opportunity in the workforce earnings. It, it, could, could any of this also have been related to women feeling a little bit more capable uh, of ha- raising children in a single parent? home.
2: Yes. And to be unequivocal about this, you know, normatively, my view is that the fact that women have economic opportunities now such that they are not financially dependent on men that they might not want to be with is unequivocally a good thing. The issue is that the advances women have made, and we see, you know, by the way, in the 80s, 90s, you know, up to the two thousand. Women's labor force participation really increased at the same time as men's was decreasing. But, you know, ideally women would have gained at the same time that men
0: did well. As the prospects for men without college degrees dwindled, they became less attractive marriage prospects, which meant more kids being raised by single moms and more boys in those homes growing up to become less marriageable themselves. It's a self-perpetuating cycle. Melissa Carney lays out in stark detail in her book, The Two-Parent Privilege.
2: This is what I'm really worried about and why I feel so uh, strongly that we need to consider this an urgent policy matter. We've got millions of kids growing up in the disadvantageous situation of only having one parent in their home. They are at an elevated risk of not achieving high levels of education, of not having high earnings in adulthood, and of then being single parents themselves. And so this family structure gap between the most educated Americans and everyone else is a perpetuator of advantage and disadvantage across the generations. That's, I mean, that's why it's so crucial to break this trend. And getting back to the issue specifically of boys, you've got millions of boys growing up in homes without dads, we talk about the challenge of marriageable men. How are these boys who don't have a dad in their home, who don't have a role model of somebody in a stable, healthy relationship, a financial contributor to the household, how are they forming their expectations or aspirations of how they should, you know, provide for a family in their adulthood? And so, so again, it's just going to exacerbate these challenges.
0: And so... How do we interrupt the cycle? I mean, to, uh, on the one hand, I wonder if we could just get a lot more money and emotional support into these houses where these children are being raised.
2: I mean, there's no one policy lever we could pull that's going to disrupt this. What I'm hoping, in part this book and conversation helps spur, is a real commitment to doing something about it. And it's got to be big and it has to be multi-pronged. So the first, when you say get a lot of money and emotional support into these households, 100%, the first thing we need to do is to work much harder to alleviate those those disadvantages. Things like mentoring programs, by the way, are just not necessarily all that expensive and can really help kids who who are missing out on having a second parent in their house. So we should be scaling and funding and doubling down on all interventions that have evidence of success of helping kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. Taking a longer term look at this, we should be committed to helping strengthen families. And, And that's something I think we don't do enough of at all. We've sort of had a policy matter in some sense, given up on parents, decided we'll try and fix this with a safety net or schools or school counselors. We really need to be doing much more to invest in parents. That will require a shift in our thoughts about social policy and an increase in funding of both programs and research around these programs. And then I think improving the economic position of non-college educated men in particular while it won't be sufficient, is absolutely necessary. What am I thinking of? I'm thinking of things like sectoral training programs, investments in high-quality programs at the community college level, partnerships between community colleges and employers, all sorts of things that boost skills and the availability of family-sustaining wage-paying jobs for adults without college degrees. Um, There's a lot of experimentation happening around the country with these kinds of programs. And we need to just be really investing much more in them and studying the heck out of them. Uh,
0: you actually um, did some research that um, th- that took a hard look at whether or not it would be sufficient just to get more money in the pockets of these men, of, of you know, to to have better-paying jobs for men, and whether that would lead to a natural increase in marriage. Would you talk about that study, the fracking study?
2: Right. So the context that we examined was the fracking boom that happened in various communities all across the U.S. Time now for our Bloomberg Quick Take. Fracking to extract oil and gas from shale rock has produced a flood of new energy in the U.S. and in Canada, lowered fuel prices and created thousands of jobs. We see that there's an increase in employment and earnings, both absolute and relative, among men without college degrees in particular. This was a good thing that happened to non-college educated men in the early 2000s. It did not lead to an increase in marriage. It did lead to an increase in births. People had more kids, whether or not they were married in the same proportion.
0: Was this a surprising outcome for you? Yeah,
2: this was, this was very surprising. It wasn't what I expected to find. And then we went back and looked at the similar shock in the 70s and 80s coming from the coal boom and bust in similar Appalachian communities. The changing price of coal led to an increase in male earnings in in coal-producing counties. And what happened there, when that happened, you saw an increase in marriage and a decrease in the share of kids living in single-parent
0: homes. And that's what you expected or thought would happen in the 2000s with the fracking. And yet it didn't. There there was no effect.
2: And I think this contrast of the two periods is really quite intriguing. And a potential read of this is that there's a new social paradigm, basically, in place in the 2000s, such that non-marital childbearing is pretty widespread and commonly accepted in a lot of these affected communities. And so now it will take more than just an improvement in the earnings and employment of men to see a return to two-parent households and marriage.
0: It will take what what more? It'll take the changing of social norms. Yeah,
2: exactly. I think it. I think this really is potentially quite illustrative of how economic conditions and social norms and conventions interact. And so, you know, th- this is why it's going to make it even harder to reverse, because this is why you know again, in sort of scientists speak, like improving the economic position of men is necessary but not sufficient. Oh.
0: Um, is there any risk that this multi-pronged approach that you describe um, comes in any way at the expense of the gains that women have made?
2: The women who have made the most gains are also now most likely to have the benefit of a partner in their house raising their kids with them. And so I think it is an absolute mistake to pretend that the rise in single motherhood is a success of feminism. You know, There's there's too much focus among, I would say, the feminists who are criticizing my point and my book on the small share of single mothers who are very successful economically and find themselves in their young forties without a life partner and so they choose to do it alone. That is not the typical single mom in America. And so really we should celebrate the gains that women have made and at the same time lament that millions of economically vulnerable women are finding themselves in the very difficult position of managing a household and raising kids without a committed spouse or partner in the home. And so I do not think those two things need to be in conflict, nor do I think they actually are in reality. My own story is one where I know very well that at a personal level I benefited tremendously from having a two-parent home when I grew up not a super high income, high educated home, but two parents who are always there for me. And again, at a personal level, I am 100% certain that that's the greatest advantage I've been given in life. As a mom, I can't imagine raising my three kids by myself. I also know having a committed spouse who is a loving, provider and parent to my children is also a tremendous advantage it also though leads me to be convinced that pretending like this isn't a major advantage um, is not helpful and I'd like us to commit to finding a way for more kids and parents and frankly moms in America to have that
0: Professor Kearney thank you so much for your time today I really appreciate it
2: thanks so much for having me
0: Melissa Carney is a professor of economics at the University of Maryland. Her new book is The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. Since the fault line in American family structure is whether or not the parents have a college degree, let's dive a bit deeper into how men fell behind on that front.
3: We see a, a gender gap at every stage in education. It's actually from pre-K all the way through to PhD level now.
0: Richard Reeves has been tracking this trend for a long time. Until recently, he was a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. He's now president of a new organization he founded called the American Institute for Boys and Men. He says the gender gap in college education also dates back 40 years.
3: In terms of getting the majority of bachelor's degrees, for example, actually women overtook men in the 80s. Only about a decade after Title IX was passed, this big federal law to promote gender equality. But but it's just graduate, So a surge of women into college in the 70s and the 80s. And then, and then the growth after that has been a little bit slower. So the overtaking uh, of uh, men by women, certainly at that level, you know, took, took place a few decades ago now. But, but it doesn't, I think they're really interesting. It doesn't show any signs of slowing down. And so the trend isn't stopping.
0: Why are boys less successful in school and less interested in going further in their education?
3: We have spent, I think, a few decades really pushing the message to girls mm. uh, that they should go to college. There's been a really strong message of female empowerment, which is, I think has been spectacularly successful, and we should be very proud of the way we've changed attitudes towards college. And, but I think we've sort of just assumed that you know, boys would just keep going, right? Um, and that they didn't need those messages. But that we have to rethink that assumption now, and, and I perhaps rebalance some of the messaging around going, going to college. But there's something a bit more profound, I think, which is that actually boys develop more slowly their brains just grow slower than than girls and at about the ages of 15 and 16 there's between a year and two year gap developmentally and maybe we didn't notice that before because we had such a sexist society that it didn't always it wasn't visible uh, that girls had this educational advantage, but once we reduce the levels of inequality, the natural advantages that girls had, particularly in adolescence, just you know came to the fore. I don't know if you have sons, but mm-hmm. I have, I've raised three boys, and when you when you read about the fact that their prefrontal cortex, you know, the bit that helps them organise and get their homework done and worry about their grades, gr- grows much more slowly than for girls. It's like, yeah, tell me something I didn't mm-hmm. know. Uh, and so I think to some extent, developmentally. We've just accidentally created an education system that, that tends to favour girls mm. because their, their their brains just you know develop uh, differently and faster uh, than than boys do. Now all the incentives are there for for girls and women, and they are seizing that opportunity um, with both hands.
0: Now in the United States, women still lag men in. The broader economy economy when it comes to wages for comparable work and when it comes to not being as represented in, in um, positions of power. So, so, I mean, we're talking about women who are like way outpacing men and boys in education, but outside of education, women are still at a disadvantage. Isn't that right? How do we square those two things?
3: Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's, obviously, it's a very, very big question, Julie, that, that you've asked there. And I think the first thing to say is that um, we should be able to hold two thoughts in our head at once. You know, my, my basic soundbite version of this is that we have an education system that's somewhat structured in favour of girls and women now and a labour market that's still somewhat structured in favour of men and boys. Now, that's becoming less true over time. So the pay gap in the, amongst the under-30s, for example, has almost disappeared. Mm. And so I think what we're seeing is like a lot of the stuff we're seeing in the labour market is is getting better. And you're right, there is still a pay gap. The, the complexity about the pay gap is that a really significant proportion of it now is explained by differences in occupation. So there's a, there's still quite a lot of occupational segregation uh, and women are tending to be in occupations that are paid less for complex reasons that we probably won't get into now. But interestingly, that does overlap a little bit with the education question because if, take something like the teaching profession, which has been growing and growing. So 76% of K-12 teachers now are female and that's and that's going up every, every year. And to be a teacher, you need to have at least a four-year college degree, and many have master's degree, but it doesn't pay all that well. Mm. You know, it pays okay. And so that's a good example of how actually you might see women who get quite well educated, but not necessarily earn very much. I could think of other examples like nursing. Social work is a great example. So yeah. there's a different relationship between levels of education and pay for women and men. And I completely agree with you about, I mean, it's the top of society is still a huge problem. The fact that only one in four members of Congress uh, are female is actually makes the US quite an outlier now. And so I think what we're seeing is like a lot of the stuff we're seeing in the labor market is, is getting better. It's not getting better quickly, but it is getting better. And it's something of a legacy of an economy that used to be incredibly dominated by men. But the, the inequality in education is getting wider. Right. So the, the trends in those two inequalities are going in different directions. What we don't want to do is get 20 years from now and then think, oh, maybe now we should start worrying about boys and men in college, because well, by then it could be too late.
0: Well, Too late in what way?
3: Well, I tell you, my real fear around this stuff is that there comes a point, Point where with any kind of occupation or activity, if it does become strongly associated with one sex or one gender as opposed to another, it actually starts to become somewhat harder for people of the other gender to do it. And and I and I think as we're getting close to a point now where the idea of college itself doing well educationally is becoming seen as more of a female thing. Uh, and actually, if you talk to college admissions officers, they will tell you that once you hit 60% female, your admissions rates start to drop a little bit because it turns out that neither men nor women are hugely attracted to campuses that, that become very tilted. I think if we get to a situation where, like, a big blunt, college, college is seen as a girly thing, yeah. right? And educational success is seen as a feminine trait, then it's going to get harder and harder to get boys, especially working-class boys, um, to, to, to think about going to college because they won't see that as consistent with their own identity.
0: So um, what, what's a college admissions officer to do looking at you know a, a student body that's pushing 60% female and you know and do they does it become easier to get into college mm-hmm. if you're a man <laughs> because well, we lower well, our, we lower our expectations for you because we need you there
3: well, wow, uh, it's it's a really interesting question, and this is where I think one of the great ironies of the sort of the history of this is that mm. Title IX, which is this law I referred to earlier, which is about which was passed in 1972 to promote more gender equality, mm. actually exempted private colleges in their undergraduate admissions from sex discrimination charges. And so, what's happening is that private colleges, like the elite colleges that you think of, the Ivy, the Ivy League colleges and so on, they discriminate in favor of men in admissions. It's just open secret among admissions officers. And that's why they're still closer to 50-50 in their gender balance. But public colleges are not allowed to discriminate on the basis of sex. And that's why they are much more closer to 60-40 because they're just just not allowed to by law. So the the public colleges are a little bit uh, limited, actually, frankly, in what Mm. they can do. One thing I do think the colleges can do, so I think that everything they can do to make it easier for boys to apply Mm. and to get in, they should, without, of course, uh, breaking the law. But the other part of this that we haven't talked about yet, which is huge, is that once they get to college, the male students are much less likely to complete. In fact, the the gap between uh, the female students who graduate from a four-year college now within four years and, and the male students is 10 percentage points. Hmm. And that's, I think, something where they really could step in and give much more support to male students on campus. Uh, there's only one college, I think, in the country that has a men's center, but... Arguably, mm. we should have them, you know, all over, the, all over the country and take very seriously the fact that male students are more vulnerable to drop out than female students. So, you know, get more in if you can, but also work really hard to keep the male students that they do get. I think that honestly, everybody is struggling to readjust their view of the world because it's so, so recently that we were fighting for women's educational opportunities that I think to suddenly... Almost ask people to reverse course and start saying, now you need to worry about boys and men in education, is asking people to really, uh, really rethink some kind of deep assumptions because this change has just happened much more quickly than anybody could have anticipated. In fact, no one expected you know, women to overtake you know, so much, so quickly. And so we have a national coalition for girls and women in education, but you'd probably get laughed out of court if you suggested we need a similar coalition for boys and men. Hmm. But given that the gender gap is as big today as it was at the beginning of the 70s, just the other way around, maybe those, maybe those suggestions aren't quite as silly as they once seemed.
0: Richard Reeves is the president of the American Institute for Boys and Men and author of On Boys and Men, why the modern male is struggling, why it matters, and what to do about it. Researchers who track public well-being noticed something surprising in recent years. The life expectancy for white middle-aged men was dropping faster than for minority groups. The studies dubbed these deaths of despair and pointed to causes including drugs, alcohol, suicide, and a reluctance to seek help.
4: I felt like I couldn't talk to anyone, but I needed help, and I didn't know how to ask for help.
0: That's coming up. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Hey, friends, I would like to take just a moment and introduce you to another show from the BYU Radio family of podcasts. It's The Lisa Show. Lisa Valentine Clark is the host. She's a comedian, actress, believer, single mom. And the show delves into the multitude of challenges that shape our lives, whether it's parenting, mental health questions, social issues. Lisa and the Council of Moms will tackle it and do it with a lot of laughs along the way as we attempt to figure out this thing called life. So check out The Lisa Show. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
4: You know, you look at you look at suicide. The reality is, is that it's middle aged white men who die by the greatest rate of suicide. Women make suicide attempts at a greater rate than men, but men are more lethal. Men use firearms and there's not a lot of recovering from a firearm versus if you overdose. My name is Mark Meyer and I'm the executive director and the founder, uh, co-founder of the Face It Foundation. I I think back on my own experience when I was struggling so mightily. I am a well-connected person. I grew up in a very stable home. I've been married for 32 years. I have lots of friends. When I was so depressed and made a suicide attempt, I had a high-end administrative job, three beautiful kids. I felt like I couldn't talk to anyone. I didn't think they could help me, but I needed help. And I didn't know how to ask for help. And that's the irony. I've got a master's degree in social work. Like, I know exactly what's happening to me. But I am not utilizing what I know, because that's other people's problems. Those are other people's issues. I just need to try harder, and then I'll be fine.
0: Mark Meyer's mental health struggles started when he was young, like they do for so many.
4: You know, I can trace back to, to being in the fourth or fifth grade. I literally pulled my hair out. My anxiety was so bad.
0: And things only got worse over time.
4: I was the first person in my family to go to college. I carried a great deal of pressure around trying to perform. And, you know, with anxiety and probably a lot of ADHD, I really, really struggled to, to do college very well.
0: Eventually, he did graduate, and he got a job in healthcare administration. But the feelings of anxiety and depression persisted. In 2002, Meyer attempted suicide. He was taken to the hospital, where he spent some time recovering. He met with a psychiatrist and started taking medication. He gives a lot of credit to his family, especially his wife, for helping him to recover. A few years later, Meyer began doing presentations about mental health and his own struggles.
4: Because it was kind of eating me inside that I was carrying the secret. I was giving a talk in a church, a local church here in Minneapolis, and I was sharing my story.
0: And out in the audience, he noticed a familiar face. His cousin's husband, Bill.
4: He comes up to me afterward, and Bill says to me, you know, I don't even know if I believe depression is real or mental health issues are real, but what you just said, that's my story. So here's a guy that I'm friends with. We live about five minutes from one another. We see each other all the time. We know nothing about one another. So I approach him probably a year and a half later, and I said, hey, I don't exactly know what it's going to be But let's try to do something to help guys.
0: That spark of an idea became the Face It Foundation, an organization that offers support to men fighting mental illness. Meyer is the executive director.
4: We use a peer support model. So our approach is really relying on guys to help each other. What I tell people is we're selling friendship for free. And we're based in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. We have 24 men's support groups that serve close to 230 men. But it's just guys getting together and share. And, you know, it's so interesting. When I first got going, there was a lot of, you know, clinicians who shook their head at me. And and as I look back on that, I, I don't know why they shook their head. What are we afraid of? I mean, people are dying whether we sit down and talk or not. People are getting addicted to drugs and alcohol whether we sit down and talk or not.
0: A lot of the initial criticism zeroed in on the fact that there's no professional therapist leading a face-it meeting. And they're even more informal than what you might find at a 12-step meeting, like Alcoholics Anonymous.
4: We have no steps. You know, one of the things in a lot of 12-step groups is there's this concept of no crosstalk, meaning you take your time and you share and then we pass it on to the next guy. That is not a it group. People ask questions. People push back. People want to know why. You know, we have a lot of guys who want to make changes in their lives, whether it's jobs, whether it's how they communicate with their partner, what have you. And if they don't make those changes or at least try, I guarantee you some guy is going to say, what's getting in the way? How do we help?
0: Why is it so difficult for men to find the social support that you're offering through Face It? I mean, you know, you can go to a sports bar and see tons of guys all sort of like communing over their team, right? It's not like there are lack of opportunities to interact that men have. So what's lacking?
4: I think it's that vulnerability piece. I think it's that true caring piece. You know, the guy I founded Face It With, he was involved in high-level professional men's softball. He was a manager, and, and when word got out about how he and I were working on Face It, all these guys came to him with all these problems. You know, I've got drug problems. I've got alcohol problems. I I don't like myself. I feel suicidal. I got no one to talk to. And one day he walked into my office and and he put eight names on a piece of paper and said, what do these guys have in common? And I go, "I," I said, I don't know. And he said, well, they all don't have anyone to talk to. And I said, well, that's not unique. And he goes, yeah, they're all on the same team. Like these guys all played on the same softball team. They all described the exact same problems and not a one of them was talking to another guy. It's fear, it's shame. It's the inability to be, you know, to be vulnerable, and I see that so often.
0: Mark Meyer remembers one recent Face It meeting where a few of the men opened up about some really heavy stuff from their past, childhood abuse and sexual assault.
4: One of our participants, who's probably close to 70, uh, started talking about uh, kind of vaguely sharing a lawsuit that he's part of. Well, he began to become very nervous and sort of held back. And then finally he said, I'm going to tell you guys what's going on. Well, this man is part of a a class action lawsuit against the Boy Scouts of America, and he was sexually abused as a child. Now, remember, I just told you he's nearly 70 years old. So he's been carrying around this trauma that as he was sharing his story, he told us when this occurred, he told his mother and his mother told him that that did not happen. There's no way that could have happened. And don't you dare ever, ever, ever speak of this again. And I look around the room and I'm watching other guys as they're nodding their heads and doing their best to care for this guy. Because remember, this isn't therapy. This is just men supporting each other. After about five, 10 minutes of this man sharing and, and, and really, really sharing the depths of his pain, another guy basically looked at us and said, I'd like to share something as well. And this man proceeded to share with us a story about how he was raped by another man when he was 19 years old, and how for the better part of his 56 years of life, he's carried it around that it was his fault. And the pain of this has haunted this man for years. But that's how this works. For so many of us, the the power of a group provides some safety. For a lot of guys sitting behind a closed door, one on one, talking to a therapist whom they don't always know a great deal about, and, and again, this isn't this isn't you know this isn't that the therapy is bad, it's the setting. And for so many men, groups provide cover because they can listen. They don't always have to be under the spotlight to share. They can learn from other guys' stories, and those connections I cannot overstate. Face it, we started Face It in two thousand and nine. And I cannot overstate the number of connections, relationships, friendships that have developed out of this very simple model of sharing with
1: one another.
0: What is your advice for um, people who want to help a man in their life, who don't live in Minneapolis, don't have access to face it? You know,
4: tell them you care and tell them that there are ways you can get help tell them they don't have to immediately go into therapy, they don't immediately have to take medication. You know, those things scare people away. And it's not that those things don't have value, it's just time and place. I believe challenge is part of this. I think we have to be challenged sometimes to get better. That doesn't mean beating somebody up or shaming them, but it means saying, you know what, I will roll up my sleeves and I will walk with you, but you gotta do the work and I, I will help you, but I'll expect you to do the work.
0: Mark, thank you very much for your time today. I really
4: oh, appreciate it. Th- thank you. It's, I appreciate this. I, I hope there's value in this. and I, I hope people will ask for help because you just don't have to be out there on your own.
0: Mark Meyer is the co-founder and executive director of the Face It Foundation in Minnesota. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by James Hoops and Vanessa Goodman with help from Samuel Benson, Sam Payne, and me. Our audio engineering team includes Brandon Lewis, Kelsey Ney, and Trent Reimschusel. I'm Julie Rose, we'll talk soon.